The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Hi, Murder Bookies. This is a special episode where I am speaking with retired FBI agent Bobby Chacon. He was born in New York and he joined the FBI dive team in 1995. He was the first full-time diver and leader who established the protocols used by the FBI dive team really through this day. Bobby Chacon is the founder of the FBI's National Underwater Forensic Program as well. After the 1996 TWA Flight 800 crashed into the waters near Long Island, Special Agent Bobby Chacon used his expertise during the search and recovery mission. Later, he assisted Greece and Brazil with their Summer Olympic Games in 2004 and 2016, respectively. He retired from the FBI in 2014, and he lives in California. I first heard Bobby speak at CrimeCon Nashville in 2018, and I never forgot his story about the recovery of Samantha Koenig. He has graciously agreed to speak to me about this, and what follows is riveting. Hi, Bobby. Hi. (laughs) Hi, Jill. It's nice to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. I want to talk to you a little bit about your experience in Anchorage with Mm -hmm. the Samantha Koenig case. That's the subject of the book, American Predator? Yes, it's on that case. And then the investigation that follows Israel Keys as an unusual serial killer. I was interviewed extensively for the book. And there's kind of a chapter dedicated to me in the book. And now that book is possibly being made into a miniseries. Yes. So I'm working with uh, producers, yeah, on, on that possibility. My involvement in the Israel Key's case started on a Friday afternoon. I was driving down in a very crowded Los Angeles freeway, which is probably redundant, but every LA freeway is uh, crowded. But it was a Friday afternoon, particularly crowded, and my commute could be anywhere from two to three hours to go 30 miles. Whoa. And I'm sitting in traffic, and I get a call from my program manager in Quantico. I was, uh, at the time, the head of the FBI's Los Angeles field office dive team that time and still the FBI only has four dive teams. Three of them are on the East Coast, Miami, Washington, DC, and New York. I had built all of those teams when I was the New York dive team leader. Having the only team out West, we cover a lot of ground. And so they got a call, Quantico, who kind of at the lab, the FBI laboratory oversees the dive program because we are in effect underwater forensic investigators. And so the forensic science unit at FBI laboratory is the one who covers us and administers our budget and oversees us. So we got a call. I got a call from my program manager at Quantico at the lab. And he was a previous diver on the Washington DC team who I had trained and selected years earlier. And so we knew each other very well. And he said, we need you guys up in Anchorage, like right away. And this was, I believe on a Friday. And so I said, what do you got? He said, well, 
go back to the offsite, which is offsite in the FBI is a term for a private covert location uh, away from, say, the federal building where everybody knows the FBI offices. So the dive teams and some of the specialty units just are housed in industrial parks and very plain looking warehouses that you, you might house any kind of business you, you don't know. And inside we had our trucks and our boats and all of our gear. It was right on a small airport in LA called Van Nuys Airport, kind of like Teterboro Airport in New Jersey. If people are familiar with, with New York and Teterboro Airport is a private airport just outside of New York City in New Jersey where a lot of the uh, rich and famous when they're flying their private jets into New York, they land in Teterboro. And so we were on the airport there. And so I got back to my warehouse and I called him on a secure line and we had a conversation about the case. And he said there was a missing girl in Alaska. And I had kind of heard about this case because, you know, young missing white girls seem to get a lot of attention. And so I had vaguely heard of it. And so I said, oh, that case in Alaska, I think I heard about that. He was a barista, worked in one of these coffee kiosk things. He says, yeah, that's the one. I said, what's up with it? He goes, well, we, we, we think we know where she is. And I said, well, how's that? He says, well, they got a guy in custody. They think he's the murderer. He's admitting that he killed her and, and, and he dismembered her and put her in the lake. I said, okay. So give me the name of the FBI ERT person, which is the evidence response team. And the FBI, we don't call them CSIs. We call them ERTs. And so the evidence response team person in Anchorage was the one that I would normally liaison with to tell me, you know, what's the lay of the land? What is this lake like? What does it look like? You know, is there any dive team up there, the sheriff's office, police department, whatever, that trains there or that works in there a lot? Maybe I can get some local knowledge. I get all the information I can. Now, normally, I would go myself and do a, what we call a site survey and then come back and, you know, brief the team. And then we put a gear, gear package together on what we're going to need because every job is different. But this case, they wanted it done right away. So I pulled all the men and women who worked for me on the dive team. And we met Saturday morning early. We packed out all our gear, shipped it up to Alaska. And um, I told him because this was still, I want to say, March or April in Alaska is still very much winter. Uh, and they've had winter all, you know, for six, eight months. And so that lake was covered in four feet of solid ice. Mm-hmm. And so I told my program manager, I'm going to need a safety team, people that can drill through ice, people that can anchor into ice because we'll need harnesses, safety lines. You know, because we're going to be doing a lot of work on the ice. And when a diver's in the water under ice, there's about four or five or six people for each diver that's underwater, topside supporting them. You can't have all these people walking around the ice if they're not secured. They can fall through the ice. So right. safety teams. And so there are ways of anchoring into ice the proper way with the proper material, the proper uh, harnesses and things. So we had to have a safety team. So I asked. And they did. They, and then to the Bureau's credit, they put them all on a private jet, the Bureau's G5 which is the director's plane. And Bart, who was my program manager at the time, who was the previously a diver, got on the plane with them, with the safety team and with everything else I told them that I would need, especially for this job that I didn't have. And I had you know 90% of it. He brought the other 10%. And he and the safety team flew in. We flew up. So this is Saturday. We ship our gear. Sunday, we get on planes. We're there Sunday afternoon. And they arrive Sunday evening on the private jet. And we have a team. And so we get briefed first thing Monday morning. And the case agents and detectives tell us, you know, this is what we have. We have a guy in custody. He was arrested in Texas. Um, he lives here in Anchorage. He had in his possession the girl's ATM card and, and another piece of identification up from her. And he was using it. And we were putting money into her account. And he was withdrawing it. And we were tracking him. And we, you know, finally some very alert deputy in Texas 
read the be on the lookout for warning and spotted the car and did a stop and got him. It was great work. And he was then transported back up to Alaska and he admitted it. He just, he admitted that he had abducted her, killed her and put her in the lake. So then we met with the police chief and the head of the FBI office, the divers did. And they said, look, we, the, the, the community is, you know, torn up over this. They've been looking for her. They've been out in the fields. Every, every woods has been walked. Every, every clearing has been checked. You know, every parking lot has been scoured. And uh, I knew that because as I drove from the airport in Anchorage to my hotel, there were all kinds of billboards. And then I remember stopping at a fast food place and right at the driving window, there was a flyer for Samantha, you know, please come home we're with you. And, you know, at that point, this is, I think, about approximately six weeks, maybe from when she disappeared. So the community still had some hope that Samantha would be found alive and returned. Now we knew, of course, that was not the case. And I went by the coffee kiosk where she was abducted just to look at it. And there was a kind of a it was one of those supermarket signs that has all the different stores that are in that particular shopping center. And then it has like a little board on the back that you can put your own messages up. And the shopping center had put up some message that, you know, we're waiting for you, Samantha, or whatever, a very hopeful message. And, um, you know. Her dad, James Koenig, um, a father's love was apparent because he went way over the top in printing flyers, posters, set up a tip line, organized the volunteers in the parking lot or by the gym and the kiosk. That volunteers could come and, and search for her. Yeah, and 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 part of that is because Samantha's mom was not the best influence in her life, and for a couple of years when she was with her mom, her life was not in very good place. And her dad kind of was one of these dads who wrestled the child away. They weren't together, the, the mother and father, and so he he got Samantha back and got her straight and got her a job and got her kind of life turned around. So he was very you know invested in. In doing the right thing as a father and and stuff mm-hmm. and so you know that's that's a, that's one of the more heartbreaking aspects of this like she had he had just helped her turn her right life around she's working and she's got a job and she's hanging out with the with different people the right people and stuff and then you know this happens right so the the police chief and the head of the fbi office as soon as you find out something you need to let us know because we need to let this community heal we need to kind of make announcements and we've got press releases already drafted and things like that and stuff and First thing Monday morning after those meetings, we head up to the lake. We get there and they had state troopers posted there 24-7 since since Keyes had told them about it. And what he had done was Lake Mananuska is about 40 miles north of Anchorage in a very rural area, but not far off a main highway. And it's a popular ice fishing spot. It's probably popular fishing in the summer too, but um, in the winter, it's usually dotted with these small tents that ice fishermen set up. Basically, they have a heater in there. They drill a, a round hole with an auger into the ice and they drop a line with bait on it to the bottom. And, you know, fish are starving because when the water freezes like that, there's much less sea life that are active. And so, so it's not uncommon to see a number of these fishing tents set up on the ice. And so he's used that kind of setup to hide himself. So he, you know, after he dismembered Samantha, he took her body out uh, in, in different shifts and different pieces on a sled, set up a fishing tent, cut a hole in the ice and, and posited her in the ice in, in five different, uh, I know it's five different locations, but certainly several different locations. And then when he was done, he burned a piece of wood that he had used to kind of bring it out to where he thought was the middle and he didn't want to drag this big piece of wood back. So he set it on fire. 
when they told him about where it was, I think those troopers might have gone out there for a very first night and found this half-burned piece of wood remelted because the ice freezes and it melts, it freezes and melts. And so we kind of thought we were in the right spot. And um, I use a three-prong approach for us, which is the first thing we do is drill a hole about 10, 12 inches in diameter. We sink a cylindrical sonar down. It's a scanning sonar, and it just runs 360 degrees, just spins and spins and spins. And as soon as we got it down there, the bottom seemed very, very clear to us. And within minutes, my sonar operator said he had five different targets. He showed me what they were. Now, sonar does not show, it's not photographic, right? It's just, it shadows, it's grays and whites and blacks and, and stuff. And so you have to interpret it. And um, what happens underwater in lakes that are frozen is everything settles on the bottom. Like normally in warmer water, everything is suspended in, in the water. You know, you have, you know, microscopic organisms and you have different things that are floating around in the water that make it cloudy. But everything, all of that settles as the water gets cold under ice. And so the water is crystal clear, but the bottom is, coated with, you know, inches and inches, sometimes more, of this fine silt. So Pease had told the investigators that, you know, he put her down in. And I had five different objects, which was a tribute to the people there, because normally lakes, most lakes are so polluted. And there's so many, there's shopping carts and bicycles and barrels. And, and this lake didn't have any of that. It was very clear that there were five distinct. But, but all they were were targets to me. They were sonar targets. So they were like little blips of gray and white. They didn't show, it didn't show any detail. So the next thing we did was cut a hole about two feet by three feet, and we put down what we have. We have a number of different what we call remote operated vehicles, ROVs, which are basically mini underwater robots. And you can fly them, and they have cameras on them. They have manipulator arms. You can cut things and grab things. And so out of this second hole, which was about 20 feet from where the hole was with the sonar, we flew that. It's attached by an umbilical, and it brings back video and stuff. And so we watched pilot flew that mini ROV right to one of the targets that was on the sonar. So the sonar is operating. We can actually see the mini robot moving on the sonar into place. And th those guys coordinate, the sonar operator and the, the ROV pilot coordinate with each other to tell, okay, I'm in the right spot now because it's pitch black. You can't really see when you're flying that way. And so we settled in front of, you know, about six inches from one of these targets. And we don't know what it is. And I know that turning on the video camera at that point is a waste of time. Once the ROV impacted the bottom, it, it very slowly landed, all the silt kicked up. And so, so we waited about 15 minutes for the silt. But at that time, you know, the case agents are over my shoulder. The detectives are over my shoulder. They're on the phone with the bosses back in Anchorage and say, we've got five things. We've got five things. He said five things. And, and I'm like, I'm not. Don't do that to me. I am not verifying this as human remains. Not yet. I can't do that. Don't do that. I'm not saying anything. Imagine if it Give was yeah, it, it, but you know the, the the anxiousness of the investigators was understandable, but I wasn't going to put myself in that position. And so we waited, we were patient, and we waited. And then when we finally decided to turn the camera on, I had a lot of people over my shoulder, and sure enough, there was a human foot right in front of us. And so we knew. And I turned to the detective. I said, "I can now confirm to you that I have human remains on the bottom. I can't tell you who it is, but I can tell you I have we have human remains." And so he made the call, and as he's scurrying away, and all of that stuff is happening, I'm suiting up my divers. I had already selected the two divers that I was going to put in the water based on experience. And so I had, I immediately started getting the divers suited up. Um, again, that's a team. It takes about three or four tenders to, to get each diver outfitted because we're going down there with big steel commercial diving helmets, the way you see, you know, offshore oil rig guys, you know, the same rigs that they use. Kind of. This is not scuba diving. 
It's not technical diving. It's not cave. This is heavy duty diving. And so it takes a little while to get them dressed out. And of course, because it's freezing, we're, they're in dry suits. It takes a little longer and stuff. So we have a very strict protocol the way we set up a dive side. And it's based on US Navy. We all go to US Navy dive schools and train there with the Navy. And so we have a very a rigid protocol on how we do things. And so again, now we have to drill a third hole in the ice. And this one's going to be a big one. It's going to be a triangle. You know, for divers and ice, you generally do triangles. And each side of the triangle is probably eight or 10 feet. And so we cut that so that while the divers are getting dressed, the SWAT team who was out there with snowmobiles were cutting the big, big holes in the ice. And again, everybody and everything is tethered to a different safety line. And our safety team was fantastic. And so then I got the two divers dressed and checked them out and made sure they were okay. And then we deployed the divers. And uh, as soon as they got in the water, they have helmet camps. They have cameras on each of their helmets. So I can see and I can talk to them. And as soon as they got in, they did their checks. They check each other. So you check each other on top before you get in the water. Then you get in the water, you go down about a foot. Now you'll see a leak in the air. You don't see a leak, right? You may hear it. You don't see it. So once they're underwater, they look at each other. They check each other out. No leaks. Okay, everybody then, you know, go to the bottom. But while they're doing that, they look. And it was only about 50 feet deep. You know, when they look down and as they're slowly descending to the bottom, you can see the five targets that we had developed. And you can see it's it's a person down there. Right. And so how they did it, how they chose to progress to the five pieces, which were, uh, if you were to draw a circle around them, probably from... The furthest was probably about 30, 40 feet. You know, they weren't right on top of each other next to each other. The five pieces were strewn out about. Um, that's their decision. That's the diver's decision on how they're going to do it. They talk to each other as they go up and down. I can monitor all that and I do, but that's their decision on what they're going to do and then watch them. And on the video, again, impact the bottom and the silt comes all up and they had a, a bag, a body bag with them. Now, normally we would, because they're found in different places, we would use different body bags, but the investigators had told us that one of the things that they were doing with keys in their interrogations was this cat and mouse game. And he liked to be in charge and they had to play that game for a while. So at some point he didn't want it getting out that he had dismembered Samantha. Um, he didn't want his 11 year old daughter hearing about him dismembering a young girl like that. Whoa. You know, which is one of those really bizarre things. If you think about it, right? Your daughter's going to know you're a rapist or a murderer and a serial killer, but, but you draw the line of dismember, you know, I guess. <laughs> That was his big concern. Eventually, he got to the point after, like you said, this cat and mouse game. That was his concern that his daughter not know as much as possible about what went on here. I mean, he's just he was just so unknowledgeable about how things were going to work. Everything was going to come out. You know, we knew that. Like, you know, he wanted to, you know, the death penalty. So he wanted it as soon as possible. And we're like, okay, we can do that. Even though we knew we could. Death penalty takes a long time to institute in this country and stuff. And so years. And but but they played that game. And probably we weren't on that late an hour setting up in the very beginning before the press arrived. And so we saw the press on the banks. We didn't they weren't on the ice, but they were on the far banks looking at us with high powered lenses, with you know, parabolic microphones. So I had to warn everybody that, like, you know, everybody be careful about what you say and all that kind of stuff. And so we had a tent set up. We had several tents set up, but one specifically for the recovery of the remains. And that's where the medical examiner, the coroner's office investigators would be. They put them in there. We put it as close to the hole as possible because we, we didn't want the press seeing different 
packages come up because then they would on their own might theorize about a dismemberment. Um, so the divers were down there and they, they got Samantha back. They put her in the bag and, and they brought her back up and got them to the surface. And once we got Samantha out of the water and the divers out of the water, we had a little bit of a solemn moment as we always do for that. And then uh, we brought Samantha into that tent. I unzipped the bag and was able to examine the contents. And then I turned the bag over to the medical examiner's people. They had a man waiting and we had brought them out on a, a couple of snowmobiles with sleds. And so I, I zipped the bag back up. I signed it over to them and put Samantha on a sled. And then they brought her back to their waiting van. And then as I was doing that, my assistant team leader was attending to the divers as they got out of the water, making sure they were okay, breaking them down and out of their gear and, and packing up because at that point, our job is done. But, you know, I always have to make sure that my guys are taken care of emotionally and mentally. So I was talking to the divers, I was talking to everybody else involved and uh, making sure all of our paperwork and our video and stuff, because that's all going to be evident. At this point, Keyes is still alive. We think he may go to trial. Because a lot of these guys, even if they cooperate in the beginning, they let him go to trial. So you have to make sure all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. So, you know, I was making sure that all of our dive logs were proper and all of the video was being properly maintained as evidence and put into the right, you know, things and stuff. And so, you know, then we broke down the dive side and it took, you know, Setting up and breaking down took 10 hours and the dive itself took 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of prep work. It's a lot of breakdown work. And we got back to Anchorage probably 10 o'clock that night and it just started getting dark. I just remember it was a clear, crisp day, like beautiful blue skies with mountains all around us on that lake. And it was just amazing. And I have a picture somewhere. But as the medical examiner was taking Samantha away, Somebody said something. Everybody looked up and there was this huge bald eagle just circling the holes. And it was just amazing to see. And everybody had chills and not because it was super cold, but just because the, this majestic bird symbol of our country was just circling over us. Yes. And it was, it was just amazing. Everybody had like their own kind of spontaneous moment of silence watching that. And then everybody kind of quietly got back to work and back to business without saying much. There's not much to be said after something like that. I, I have to always warn my new divers that people have heard me speak. I mention this every time is that because we train so hard and because we work so hard and because just getting to a place like that is difficult, you put a lot of effort into it. And when you accomplish your mission like that, when it's a you for us, a big success, there's a natural feeling of exhilaration, of satisfaction that sometimes that exhilaration, that job well done, can result in people slapping each other on the back, hugging, high-fiving, whatever that emotional release is for that person when they do something so difficult and dangerous and they're now done with it successfully. But I always have to warn my people that that can be misinterpreted. You know, we've just recovered a murdered child and the press is all over us. And the last thing you want to do is have one little gesture get misinterpreted and make the front page of the newspaper. So go about your business, be very businesslike, be very, you know, functionary, you, you do your job, and we'll, we'll celebrate later in our own way. And stuff. So you always have to be mindful of that. And it's not something that's natural, you have to really be told about it, you have to think about it. Because the, the natural tendency is to celebrate, you just did a great job. This is what we train for, this is what we do this for. And so naturally, there's going to be an exhilaration, there's going to be a sense of satisfaction. But at the same time, and then this is the, my byline is always, my tagline is always, 
when we have a good day, it means somebody else is going to have a really bad day. And that means, you know, we've done our job, but there's a father 40 miles away from here being told that his daughter, you know, who kind of knew and, you know, maybe, but we're going to be the one. You know, I always said that because we did a lot of child cases and, you know, whenever we got into town, there was usually some hope still left. And our job was to go in there and snuff out that last bit of hope. Oh, God. As divers, we weren't there to rescue anybody because that's not what our role was. So we were there to kind of snuff out that last bit of hope, confirm for the family, the mother, the father, sisters, brothers, whoever, that their loved one was deceased. And then they can get on to whatever journey they're going to have uh, to deal with the rest of their lives. That's different for every person. And people use different terms to, to describe it. But that was that was our role. That was our job is to is to snuff out that last bit of hope, confirm their worst fears, and then leave town. <laughs> so it wasn't exactly, you know, you know, we're not firemen rescuing cats out of trees. You know, we, we oh. deal with a lot, a lot of different, a lot darker stuff. Not that firemen don't believe me. I was in New York on 9-11, so I know what firemen deal with, but we never, you know, I, I said to somebody, when I like, I just wanted to know what it felt like just one time to rescue somebody. And we, it was just wasn't our role. I never did. Never found that what that feeling was. But just one time, you know, because firemen, they do deal with the bad stuff, but they also have the good stuff. Every once in a while, they rescue somebody, right? We never, that wasn't our role. We never got to do that and stuff. And so I remember pulling back into town and and Anchorage is, you know, it's very popular. You know, everybody's heard of it, but it's actually a very small town, you know, in in comparison to other places. And, you know, 10 o'clock at night, everything was closing up, but we hadn't even eaten yet. And so I remember one of the agents that lived there, worked there, one of the ERT people, I said, look, can you just, do you have any place where we can go and get, get a meal? Cause we're starving. We had some boxed meals out on the lake, but you know, you work up an appetite when you do that kind of work. And so there was one bar, a little pub type of place, and they actually called and asked if they could stay open. And they were, they did. They normally close at 10. We got in there about 9.55. And there were a couple of people still at the bar, a couple of local people just kind of hanging out. And, um, we took two booths in the back as tradition. I, I buy the first round and the, Bartender slash manager came over and, you know, we don't wear marked clothing. We don't wear uniforms. We were all dressed the same. We all had blue shirts on. We all had cargo pants on. Yep. Uh, yeah. You're right. Yeah. And, and, and the TV is playing. The 10 o'clock news is actually promoing coming up at 10 o'clock. You know, Samantha Koenig is located and recovered. And now there's eight, 10 strangers walk in. You know, it's a small town. They, you know, they know we're outsiders and, and they figured out who we were real quick. And so, the bartender and the manager, the manager came over and said, the first round's on us. You know, thank you for being here without specifically saying he knew who we were. He, he let us know he knew who we were and I'm sure he could tell. And so, you know, we had our meal and we squared the gear away at the FBI office. And next morning I let them everybody go home. And the next morning we broke it out, washed it, dried it, repaired it if it needed to, or marked it for repair when we got back to LA. And that was Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. We shipped things back. And then I stayed one extra day and I, I let the team leave as soon as they could. Um, the private jet went back to Quantico with the safety team and Bart and the rest of my guys and my, my men and women got on commercial planes as soon as they could get back to their families. Cause after, after something like that, you need to go back to their families as quick as you can and stay grounded a bit. So, so that's, that's what we did. I stayed, made sure all the evidence was handled properly. It was checked into the Anchorage office evidence locker. And, and did everything, made sure all the paperwork was right and stuff. And then I, I flew back a day later. I was able to meet with the investigators and go over some stuff. You know, told them that whatever they needed, we were there. And sure enough, I don't know how 
how much later, but we got the call to go and deploy on uh, the Bill and Lorraine Courier case. Yeah, there's another one. Yeah, there was another case that Keyes had given up and put a gun in the water that he used. Now, their bodies were never found, but he had described how he got rid of the gun that he had used to kill them. And, and so because I had done the first one, I was tasked by Bart, by my program manager, Chronico, to fly to New York and work with my old team because the New York team was my old team. I ran that team for a number of years and work with them and go upstate and supervise the dive for the recovery of the gun that was used in the Bill and Lauren Courier case. And so I did that. And like I said, the, the timing of it is a little fuzzy. I don't remember how much longer after Samantha's recovery did, did I deploy to get the gun in the Courier case. But, you know, I, at that point, felt that Israel Keys was going to keep us busy because I think that he knew water. He liked to put things in water. And it was one of his habits and stuff. So I thought that as he revealed more and more of his crimes, we'd probably get more and more missions to go out and search different bodies of water. But then, unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way because he was allowed to take his own life in jail several months later before he could give any more specifics on any of the cases. Yeah, that was a shame because, you know, you were saying this is important. I want you to hear me here, too. You were saying that here you're bringing home bad news for the family. And it certainly wasn't the way we wanted, but you did bring Samantha home. And there's yeah. a lot of these cases that I suspect that he was involved with, that the police suspect he's involved with. And we don't have the slightest idea where to even begin to look for their bodies. And those people aren't coming home. You did something really, really important here. You really, you really did. Well, we always... We always know that. We feel that. I hope so. I really do. But it, it, it is, it's just, it's the nature of the beast. It's very, it's a very unique situation to be in. I remember the day I retired, a little luncheon thing in the office and everybody kind of shows up and, you know, they get around with you. And my boss, who's now back at FBI headquarters, is like the second in charge of the FBI, I think. He said, yeah, you're going to miss this place. You're going to miss us or whatever, you know. And I don't know why it just struck me, but like, I said, yeah, boss, you're right. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely miss everybody in this room. I'm going to miss men and women I work with. I'm going to miss the divers and the dive team. And then I, I just, and this just was not scripted. It, not even something I thought about, but I said, but I'm not going to miss pulling another dead kid out of the lake. Wow. And, um, yeah. It just, it, I, I was really regretful that I said it because it did kind of cast a pall on the, on the festivities of my retirement. <laughs> I later realized it was probably a bit of my PTSD striking out because quite frankly for the dive team we we would go up and do that and you know there was a lot of accolades when we got back from that job and you know and the great job we heard what happened you know you know you got to go back and that's great to have that kind of recognition but they don't get what it's like to be there they don't get what it's like to be it, it's it's like it's like where the with the entourage for the angel of death. It's like we, you know, we, wherever we go, we're bringing a black cloud with us, you know? And, and, and so I don't think while it's great and we did our job and we feel satisfied and we wouldn't want to do it any other way. There's also that experience of like, you guys are the Grim Reaper. Like when you get into town, people go running. You know, it's not a lack of appreciation for what we do. It, you know, we definitely, Felt appreciated in things, but it's it's just, and unless and until you do it and you're involved in something like that, man, it's hard to describe 
the melancholy or the the bittersweetness of it where you know you you feel so proud of the work but at the same time you wish your job didn't exist i wish i never had to do that job i'm glad i was the one to do it but i wish it never had to be done yeah um i mentioned this to you before but i was in kosovo in 2000 mm-hmm. um, when the whole ethnic cleansing went on and the mass graves yeah Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. my husband was um, actually with the 82nd Airborne. And one of his details was dealing with the mass graves. And you do. You feel like a grim reaper. Yeah. It's it's a terrible experience. But the the good that comes out of it is recovery, is answers for families. They get answers. A lot of families mm-hmm. don't get answers. and and. This family did. Yeah. I can't yeah. imagine, though, the, the sustained emotional trauma that you, that you have to feel as you go through this again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really wasn't aware that there was any kind of dive team. I mean, I guess you realize that people have to be recovered from underwater, but, you know, that just kind of happens, right? Well, no, there's all of this planning. There's all of these procedures in place. There's so many safety considerations. This is, this is dangerous business. And you did it and you did it well. Uh, you should tell my people, I, we're, we're doing crime scenes in an environment that's hostile to human life. You know, mm-hmm. you are going to be in danger while you do this crime scene. And so safety is always the, the number one concern, right? If something has to be done. What was the temperature of the water? Um, it was probably 33, 34 degrees, probably. It's just above freezing because, you know, it can't go below freezing, you know, right? So the funny part is, like, how can you get in, you know, in that water like that? Well, I can tell you, there are been jobs. I remember one particular one in Colorado where the warmest people on the team were the ones in the water because you get a dry suit on, you have thermal underwear, you have layers and layers, and you're in a dry suit and you go under the water which is at most 33 degrees. It can't get colder than that or it's ice, right? Right. I'm on top of them. We used to have to bring pallets because you can't stand on ice for eight hours without it getting up into your feet, the coldness, right? So you bring these wooden pallets so you're two or three feet, inches off the ice and it's 20 degrees air temperature with a 20 mile an hour wind on the surface. And so the guys that are men and women that are actually outside the water are the coldest. Right. And the weird part is about a lot of those types of searches, and particularly the ones in Colorado that we used to do a lot, is you're on a lake, just like Mananusco was, you're on a lake, it's covered in snow, which is bright, bright white, and you're in an environment in the mountains, bright, bright sun. And so you're actually sweating. I mean, you don't feel cold, you feel hot. And we, on those jobs, always had to remember to pack sunscreen because we would get sunburned, literally standing on a frozen lake because the white of the ice, or even if you brush off the ice, the glassy surface of the ice reflects the sun back up into you. I mean, you'd get the underside of your nose and your nostrils burned unless you had a lot of sunblock on. So it sounds weird that you're deploying to a place that's 20 degrees, but don't forget the sunblock. That was a real concern for us. And you know, you learn that you have to have polarized sunglasses and things like that to see. It's blinding whiteness sometimes in those environments and stuff. And so, yeah, it's yeah, we used to get kitted a lot when we would go to the Caribbean for training or Key West to train. There's a, actually a, a Navy facility in Key West we used to use a lot. You know, when you get back to the office, you get, oh, the swim team's back. Oh, you guys got a good team going. 
But, you know, I always tried to balance that with, you know, like, hey, we when we have to work, we don't get to choose where we have to go, you know. And so when we are able to choose, I'm going to choose somewhere damn nice for my people because they deserve it. Because they're going to be in a lot of, a lot of crap. They're going to be in the swamps of Florida where we've actually had to have the fishing game guys shoot alligators. Literally, I, they had shot an alligator to keep it away from us. We dive in a lot of really crappy places and uh, cold and hot and dark and swampy and stuff. And so, like, when you can choose and have some kind of control over where you're going to do it, then you, you do it in a nice place. And I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to accept any grief over that decision. No, absolutely not. You're yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. We went down to Belize and we trained the Belizean National Police and underwater crime scene management stuff. And uh, that was a fun trip. But, you know, we got a lot of ribbing for, for things like that. But, you know, like I said, you, you always come over and, and kid us about that. But you never come over and kid us when we get back from some really swampy, crappy, you know. I remember one job. The only one job I remember actually turning down was I'm an agent in Alabama had a case where a farmer, I think, was suspected of killing his wife, putting her body in a basically a huge concrete tub on a farm, which I didn't realize they had. When I say tub, it was... 30 feet wide by 60 feet long and about 12 feet deep. It was just a big concrete thing. But it was filled with cow and pig excrement. Oh, no. That's what it was. The, the I guess they made it into fertilizer or whatever they do with it. You know, the, the bottom was a sluggy, sloggy kind of gelatinous material. And then you had this liquidy material and this foam on top. And I'm like, I'm not putting my divers in there. Well, you want there, you can rake it, you can drain it, but I'm not putting divers in water. No. It's not even water. I wouldn't even consider it water. But there were plenty of lakes, like on farms particularly. I remember doing one in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, finding a gun. You know, farm ponds are generally runoff. And so you generally have, you know, the animals, the farm, the, the cows and the pigs and whatever and the animals are there. They're, you know, they're just doing their thing. And so you have a lot of excrement and a lot of waste in those water. So you could get sick because the water couldn't be contaminated, but you have to do it. So I remember a lot of times when we were in ponds on farms that it looks like, oh, this little thing, this will be nothing. But it's really, you have to be careful. You know, you have to you know, make sure all your shots are up to date and you have to make sure that you don't breathe in any of that, that water and stuff. And so, you know, there's a lot of different considerations. Absolutely. Listen, I've said very little here because you've said it all. And I cannot thank you enough for going into all the detail on that, what the dives involve, the planning, the <clears throat> strategy, and, and the toll. That's been incredible. But the diving itself, Bart and Joe did the diving. I only call him Bart and never called him by his first name, but you know, they, they probably tell you the diving itself wasn't difficult. What's difficult is the aftermath and, and dealing with what you're actually doing, right? We've certainly had more complicated diving and that's more dangerous diving, but this still is difficult in, in different aspects. I don't know that there's a diver on my team that was on that mission that doesn't remember it very, very specifically, but we also remember Chelsea King down in San Diego who we recovered. You know, we remember every single child that we recovered and being there and, and that. So yeah, so it's uh it, there's there's a lot of different aspects. But thank you for having me. I, I appreciate the interest in hearing, you know, what we did because a lot of times I learned now as a writer in Hollywood that the divers are often relegated to like a few minutes of maybe a minute of airtime because, you know, you see the diver and then you see the the detective come over and get this key piece of evidence that the diver hands over. And that's all you see in the diver. They're in there for about 30 seconds. I think what you did was just so vital. The only time I've ever seen diving like this portrayed properly 
it's either on Netflix or it's, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a, a dramatized version of a true case where a journalist went out on a man-made submarine by this guy. I think it was in Sweden or Norway or somewhere over there. Yes. And, um, and she wound up getting killed by this guy and uh, he dumped her, he left her in the water. And that show, I think it was about six episodes. And I watched it just because it was the only show that ever like spent time showing how the divers work because like a key piece of evidence was her head was missing and her skull. And he claimed that one of that big metal hatches fell on, knocked her out and killed her. And so they were really trying to find her skull because if it had no damage on it, then his story was, you know, awesome. blown out of the water. <laughs> and they really followed the diver. Probably three of the six episodes were about the diver, which I really appreciate. And it's a, you know, it's a subtitle and stuff, but I watched every minute of it because, you know, I'd never seen the divers treated with such respect and showing them exactly what they're doing. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm writing something, but I just can't seem to get everybody interested in making it. Most producers think working underwater is too expensive. I can understand that, but the interest is very real. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm working on it. If it's up to me, you're going to see. You're going to see it someday. Well, I will look for everything you are involved with in the future. Oh, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Bobby. Sure, anytime. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Bye bye now. Thank you for listening. That wraps up my special episode speaking with Bobby Chacon about the recovery of Samantha Koenig. I really appreciate you listening. And my choice for my next book is A Death in White Bear Lake by Barry Siegel. In 1962, Jerry Sherwood gave up her newborn son, Dennis, for adoption. 20 years later, she set out to find him, only to discover he had died before his fourth birthday. What happened to the little boy Jerry never forgot? Jerry begins asking questions, which unlock a 20-year secret wrapped up in apathy and silence. Thank you for listening. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelpbookclub.com. I would love to hear from you. And please leave us a five-star review. Subscribe where you listen to podcasts, car, home, work, workouts, and let my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source and snack material for the American Predator trilogy, including the interview with Bobby, is found on my blog too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosanna, and lyrics by Otto Harbach.